Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Story Blender. I'm Stephen James, and this is where great storytellers share the secrets of great storytelling. Now, many of you know that I'm an author, and I write uh, novels, uh, mystery, suspense mainly, and some fantasy and young adult novels. But before I ever started to write novels, I was a storyteller in the sense that I would go and orally tell stories at schools, conferences, libraries, and so on. And in those years, before I really started writing, I met up with another storyteller named Tim Lowry. And uh, at the time, Tim was doing uh, a lot of school shows. And since then, he has just taken off as one of the premier uh, storytellers in the country. Uh, and he's joining us here today. I'll give you the quick background, and then we'll dive right in. Tim's been telling stories of the people, by the people, and for the people for 15 years telling a variety of folk tales and stories from American history. He's presented thousands of educational programs for schools across the country. And at festivals, he entertains audiences with a mixture of folk tales and personal narratives. He also presents storytelling and communication workshops at corporate events. As an award-winning solo performer, he has received wide critical acclaim. And Tim, thank you for coming in today. My pleasure. I like the name of your podcast, Story Blender. <laughs> yeah, it's like we will, you know, every story has a certain things within it, whether it's a told story or a novel or whatever, and it, emotional resonance, character, struggle, pursuit, and all these things. And we, we kind of believe that it's how you mix them together. It isn't just like, um, uh, you know, 30% of conflict and 20% of character traits or something, but how do you mix them all together so people enjoy the story, and it doesn't just uh, end up being uh, the same in generic uh, taste as anything else. Yeah, that's very true. I often find I have all these ideas swirling around in my head, but the secret ingredient is missing. So it blends for a long time. And then, and then all of a sudden you're like, oh, it How do needs you find a, it, it needs a How dash of that. And then you're like, now I'm ready to bake this story. At <laughs> um, some of my workshops in the past, uh, I was talking about oral storytelling, like... Um, I'll talk about all of the aspects, really passion and wonder and imagination and all these things before ever getting into voice and diction and, you know, mm-hmm. like posture or whatever, all that. I would say, like, the goal if you bake a chocolate cake for someone and you give them a um, piece of cake, I mean, what do you want them to, to do? You want them to smile, maybe, <laughs> taste, and then say, I want some more, right? You don't want them to take a bite and say, huh. It tastes like she used a cup and a half of sugar. <laughs> it's the same when you do a show. Like, you don't want someone to say, huh, what a clever use of dialect. No. <laughs> you just want them to be in the story, right? You never you never want to bake a cake and somebody says, interesting. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, so, um, so, yeah, we try to um, mix all the ingredients together so no one notices. You know, when there are great storytellers, you know, performing um, – Maybe it is at Jonesboro, where I know you tell stories sometimes, or at other festivals or events around the country. I mean, you just, you get drawn in. You're sitting there listening, and you don't really notice. Um, uh, I don't even know if they're doing something, quote, wrong, right? Like, there are some storytellers who will just sit there on a stool and and spin stories. And you think, well, they're not using very good posture, or they don't have good body dynamics or something. But <laughs> you don't even notice that stuff, because you're so... 
Good. Back in the day, uh, I told stories at a place called the Corn Island Storytelling Festival. In Kentucky. Uh, up sure. in Kentucky, yeah. yeah, yeah. And so it was my first big festival. This was like 97 or something like that. And there was a storyteller named Jackie Torrance who told right before me. And at the time, Jackie was one of like the premier storytellers in the whole oh, circle yeah. and stuff like yeah. that. So, so she was like the big name storyteller. And so she came up, and she was right before me. And um, so she did... A story, and she would just sit on a stool and tell stories. She was a large woman and wouldn't romp around the stage, and she would just sit there. And, but she didn't care. You were just enthralled, right, mm-hmm. um, by the story. And I think it was a good mixture of her personality and her skills and gift, and it wove together in a way that was that was just uh, powerful. And I remember thinking, oh, great, i got to fade. You know, i got to <laughs> follow Jackie Torrance up on stage. Yeah, but, yeah, there's always that one that you really dread following, that's for sure. But don't you think, wouldn't you rather follow someone who is good than someone Oh, definitely. Follows? Somebody said to me, they said, if you're emceeing a show, your main job is not so much what you say to introduce the performer, but if you can create this big ball of energy and then hand it to the next performer or the person who's the featured speaker. And that is really true. I'd much rather have somebody have a big ball of energy energy and hand it to me than to have something that was really kind of flat, and then you're like, oh, man, i got to pump these people up. I know emceeing is really, um, it's not a warm, you're not the warm-up act. And so when emcees look at it like, I'll just be the warm-up or whatever, I like that idea of, Creating the energy, passing it along to, and that's really, I think, what um, they're there to serve. You know, mm-hmm. the, the whoever it is, the main performer. I'm a, I'm a great big fan of the circus, and Ringling Brothers is having open auditions for their new ringmaster, and and so they published recently an article about what a successful ringmaster is, and it's very much what an MC for any show would be. They said you have to be the friend of the audience. You, you bring them along on this fantastic journey, but you also have to be the number one cheerleader for the performers and let them know, you know, if anything goes wrong, I'm going to, I will step in and make you look good. (laughs) That's great. So did you apply? Are you going to be one? You have to have a Broadway singing voice, and that's my downfall. Oh, really? Yeah, I'm consistently flat when I sing, (laughs) so I was like, darn that's My goal is to, when I get so old that I can't perform anymore, I just want to travel with Ringland Brothers and be the circus chaplain. I'll have a <laughs> prayer with everybody before you go out and risk your very life for the entertainment of people across America. <laughs> so many years ago, I um, when I was just getting started, I read a book by a guy named Bob Stromberg, who's a storyteller, um, and he had written a book called Why Geese Fly Farther Than Eagles. I read this, and I was like, this was probably 96 or 95, and I was like, this guy's doing what I want to do. Like he's telling these stories that help inspire people that are thought provoking, uh, some more spiritual, inspirational stories. And so I was like, Bob Stromer's like, I, so I, um, so I ended up, I knew he was from Minneapolis and at the time the internet wasn't really a big deal, whatever. So I found a phone book and I literally just started looking for Strombergs in Minneapolis. And I called him up. I was like, Hey, you have no idea who I am, but <laughs> Um, you know, I want to be a storyteller like you, and I want to, um, you know, inspire people and do shows and performances, and what do you recommend? And he said, oh, you should go study at the um, Celebration Barn Theater up in South Paris, Maine. Hmm. And so I was like, I'll do it. So I went up there and did like a three-week 
program. Well, the reason I tell you this whole story is, first of all, Bob really inspired me when I was getting started, and that was really cool. He didn't, you know, look down on me or anything. He's like, oh, I'll inspire you. And then when I went there, a lot of the people there, we were studying physical comedy, and a lot of them were circus artists. Oh, yeah. Some were jugglers. There was, like, the sixth best juggler in the world was there, and then Avner the Eccentric, who's the clown and performer, was doing a show and stuff. And so it was really just interesting for me as a storyteller to encounter sort of mimes and physical comedians and jugglers and magicians and and just to kind of see how all of those um, kind of used their, their art form. But Tony Montanero was the guy in charge, and his thing was like, you are there to tell a story. Like, I don't care if you're a juggler. I don't care if you're a magician or what you walk a tightrope across it. He's like, you're there to tell a story. And uh, I always remembered that. It was like, you're not there to show off. You're there to really, you know, to invite people into a story. And um, I think over the years, like, sometimes I've gone to musicals. And basically, a musical to me is kind of like a karate movie. <laughs> like, the plot means nothing. It's just there to kind of get you to the next fight scene. <laughs> In that case, it's there to get you to the next, you know, solo yeah, or the next big number, big number yeah. and stuff. But, but they never really move me um, because they're really not about story. They're about setting up for the next performance. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. But, Musicals are often, yeah. I mean, everybody needs some candy. But a little bit can go a long way. So I always think of a, a big, splashy Broadway musical as like showbiz candy. Interesting. And that's a good thing yeah. in in the right dosage. <laughs> well, it's been neat to see over the years how your career has really taken off. I know you've done, and you still do, a lot of school shows and residencies. Um, and uh, when you go into a, a school, uh, I know that you'll do some performances from historical figures and so on. But I know you also do work with uh, students, kind of equipping and inspiring them to tell stories and shape stories. Mm-hmm. What are some of the principles that you really emphasize, especially with, you know, the next generation of how do we shape and tell, you know, stories, whether we're writing or maybe telling them? Probably, probably young students are not much different from older students or adults in that I think a lot of times their first thought is, but I don't have anything interesting to talk about right. or write about. And and so I I spend a good bit of time with students just talking about everyday real life. And tell me about when you went to the grocery store and uh, you got lost and you had to find your mother. Or I love open-ended questions like, have you ever done something that you knew you should not have done? <laughs> and you just leave it there right. and, and then let them, let them talk. And let them hear the story in their own ears. Yeah. I think a lot of times, particularly if the end goal is to have them write a story, which is often the case in school. Yeah. You know, we yeah. want them to be competent or confident writers. We say, all right, you know, put some things down in your journal and then pick one and write a five-paragraph essay or story. And we're really much more social than that. Yeah. And, and we, we do ourselves a big disfavor if we don't hear it in our own ears. And so just talk about it with a friend and, and another friend. Let them ask you questions. I think that's huge. You know, when I do seminars for speakers and storytellers, performers, whatever, I sometimes tell people, write your story with your mouth. Mm-hmm. And, and people are like, what? Well, if you're going to tell it, you're write it. Because you start to notice things. 
that you wouldn't notice just by, you know, writing it down. And one of the things I, I noted here a moment ago when you were telling us, like, um, in each of those instances, you mentioned something that didn't quite go right. You know, when is they right, right? Yeah, and, exactly. And at the heart of any great story is a character pursuing something that's out of reach. You know, it might be trying to become a better person or overcome guilt from the past. It might be um, to, you know, deliver the great ring across the kingdom. Whatever it is, is there's, there's always this desire and this pursuit. Um, and I think, you know, helping people to really focus on the aspect of something going wrong is, it's huge as far as, especially inspiring them to come up with the stories, you know, to write. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And things going wrong is universal. So you know you, there's an audience <laughs> for your story somewhere if something goes wrong. <laughs> Absolutely. And, uh, I, I, you know, I used to do some residencies, and I was at this one school, and, you know, after um, – after every uh, summer vacation or whatever, kids come back to school, and the teacher always gives them the same assignment. Write about what you did over the summer. Right? Oh, yeah. And so they're like, well, I went to camp, I came home, played video games, I went swimming, whatever. And so I went to the school. It was after, I don't know what vacation, maybe it was summer or something. I said, okay, kids, don't tell me what you did over the summer. But can anybody tell me about something that went wrong? So this boy, fourth, fourth grade boy, raised his hand and said, what happened? He said, and he was a natural storyteller. Like, once he got started, he's like, well, my cousin came over to my house, and we were having a contest to see who could jump the farthest off my bunk bed. I'm thinking, this could be good. <laughs> and so I said, well, what happened? He said, well, he jumped first. He got pretty far. I said, I can get further than that. And I said, well, did anything go wrong? He said, I backed up to the wall. Now, right away, that's a bad sign. Right? <laughs> he's like, I ran, and I jumped off the top bunk, and the ceiling fan was on. Uh oh! Got my head stuck in the ceiling fan, threw me against the wall, <laughs> but I got farther. <laughs> so I tell people it's the it to me it's the um, it's the ceiling fan principle. You do not have a story until something goes wrong. So if I would have told those kids, "Tell me what you did," he would have said, "I played with my cousin." But because I said, "Tell me what went wrong," he told me a story. Mm-hmm. And so helping people to move back from the idea that stories are about things that happen. They're about no. They're about things that are pursued. They're about things that are overcome, not just that occur. Um, and I think uh, you know when you listen to some of the other performers on stage, or you listen to some of the people who really uh, you know have impacted you over the years. It's probably true. You know, a lot of times it's like stories are about um, that conflict. I think the struggle, not just sure, the things sure. happen. Right? That's why reality TV ain't real. <laughs> It would be very boring if it were. It is much more scripted than most of us. So, yeah. So if you're going to have ten random people, one of them must be a jerk, so that the nine <laughs> others can work to eliminate him. Exactly. <laughs> and then we will all very much enjoy watching that. <laughs> well, now a lot of the material that you use is original. Now I know that you sometimes do uh, historical uh, figures and so on. At least you have some in the past. But still, all of that's written. You mm-hmm. write it all yourself. Um, and so whether it's coming up with a personal narrative or maybe a historical kind of story, talk us through a little bit of what, what's your process for developing material for, uh, for maybe an audience of a 1,000 people or whoever it is that you might be performing for. I would say a lot of storytellers begin in a similar fashion with 
folk tales. So you you find a, an anthology, several anthologies. Maybe a school wants you to do stories from uh, the pioneers or stories of a certain region like Appalachia or something. So you start, you know, digging through the library, finding some folk tales. And those you kind of just, you like, learn the story. Right. You, you know, like, I'm going to read this eight times and I'm going to work on some voices. I have some stories so like that. Yeah, <laughs> and you're like, uh, I have a show a week from Tuesday and I've got to have a rabbit and Alan Snake. So here we go. Um, <clears throat> and then, but when you do that, it's a very educational exercise for you as the storyteller because you start to see story structure you realize, oh, I can hang all these characters on the classic one, two, three pattern, or this, there's this same type of it that occurs over and over with a different character each time in the story, that kind of thing. So you begin to realize how different little elements are, are put together. Then you can apply that knowledge to other stories. So it's really hard to tell a story from history and tell the whole story because people right. live long and many, many things happen to them. Yeah, I mean, it's so an 80-year-long story. Yeah, yeah. Hard to learn, those too. Hard to learn. <laughs> so, you, so you select things and you think, ah, I could pattern lessons that John F. Kennedy learned as a young man uh, from a jack tale that I learned huh. previously. I could use the same pattern That's to, to you know, shape what I want people to know about John F. Kennedy's youth, or some, or something like that. So I really like, I really love to look at folk literature for the patterns that are there, so that I can use it as a model for other stuff that I might want to do. Now, um, I haven't heard this from your repertoire, but someone was telling me, "Oh, have you ever heard this guy Tim Lowry?" I'm like, "Yeah, no, I, I kind of know from the past. Like our paths have crossed, but mm -hmm. we haven't had a chance to hang out as much." But he's like, he does this one um, story with, is it a gazoo? Oh, sure. Tell me yeah. about the What's the good yeah. zoo? Is it the, like, is it the three <laughs> little pigs or something? Or yeah, what, well, what, tell me about that. I don't know. A number of years ago, I saw a fellow storyteller, Beth Horner. She's from the uh -huh. Midwest. Tell uh, the three little bears with a, a kazoo. And she just pops a kazoo in her mouth and never takes it out. Just tells the whole story with just vocal inflection. There are right. no words. But oh. because you know the story of the three bears, right? you know, it, you're like, oh, yeah, I know this. I right, know exactly right. where this is going. So I started doing that with a, a Grimm's fairy tale called Seven Goat Kids, and it's a big bad wolf story. The uh -huh. kids are in the house, and the wolf comes and knocks on the door, pretends to be their mother, and, and they recognize that his voice is much more deep and gruff than the mother, and so he goes away and eats a piece of chalk, and that softens his voice, and eventually he tricks them and eats up all the goat kids, but classic fairy tale. He's asleep under a bush, and the mom goes, cuts him open, and gets all and the kids. Out. The kids. Yeah, that's and so I tell it, and then I take out a kazoo and uh, talk about Charlie Brown teacher talk. Oh, right, right. Wah, 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 yeah, wah. And I yeah. say, you know, it's very important to learn a second language, and you probably already know one, and you didn't even know it. Everybody is born <laughs> being able to speak Charlie Brown teacher talk. And I do the whole story again with a kazoo in my mouth. <laughs> and everyone gets it. <laughs> and everyone knows exactly. And then you can do fun things that are cult quick cultural references that work with music. So when the wolf shows up, you know, I go, <coughs> Oh, yeah, yeah, right, yeah. Uh, when the goat kids are playing, you break into cool in the gang. <laughs> so, um, yeah, th no, no, that's fun because it plays off from what the audience knows and expects. And, um, 
Now, in that case, we you're actually using their expectations to satisfy them. And one of the paradoxes, I think, of good stories, especially novels, is readers want to anticipate how it will end. It's probably the same with stories, right, that, were, that are told, but we want to anticipate, but we want to be wrong. Like, I want to mm-hmm. say, oh, I think I know who killed him or whatever it is, but all of a sudden there's a twist. And we're like, oh, what? Oh, man, it was this other guy, and I didn't even see it coming. But if we're right, we're not happy. You know, if like 200 pages from the end, we're like, I know, kill. Tim was the killer, right? Yeah. And all of a sudden it gets to the end, it's like, Tim was the killer. Like, like, I saw that coming, you know, a million years ago. <laughs> so, but so we like that those stories to end in a way that's unexpected and inevitable. And like in the same way with, you know, told stories, when people build them up and build them up, a lot of humor, I think, relies on callbacks. In other words, like uh, something happens and we kind of call back to it oh, okay, you can see the connection. Very much so, yeah. yeah. Yeah, you start to synergize things. And uh, that's, I was just talking to a friend yesterday who's going to be a speaker at a, a big conference, and his job is to give the closing address. So there's really nothing to prepare. He will attend the conference and then synergize the whole thing as a wrap-up for the people. So they want him to reference workshop A, keynote speech from three days earlier, all that, and, huh. and wrap that into a story. And I said, that sounds really fun and really terrifying all at the same time. But he'll he'll very much depend on that, yeah. referencing things yeah. that have come before. But I think a lot of humor, you know, um, depends on that. Um, we've talked on this show a little we bit We tend to laugh about something that's familiar. I think so, so yeah. <clears throat> Even if it's just immediately familiar, like... There was a reference made 10 minutes ago, and then if you can loop back to it, yeah, exactly. that's familiar. Other times, it's something that's familiar from your childhood or a common experience that everybody had when they were in college, and we, we often laugh most at what's familiar. I was listening to a radio show. They interviewed a guy who had just written a book about late-night comedy, right? And his point, I don't know if he was an expert on the history of it or whatever, but anyway, on the radio, he's his point was that we only laugh at what's true. I was like, what do you exactly mean? And then he gave the example. He said, like, if you made a joke about Stephen Hawking being smart, everyone would laugh because we all like Stephen Hawking is smart, right? Mm-hmm. But if you made a joke that depended upon Stephen Hawking being dumb, nobody would laugh. Because in their experience, they're like, well, he's not dumb. And so you're just making fun of him. And so it's not even funny. Um, and so then he just started, he's like, give me somebody, and like the host said, Hillary Clinton, and so like, he like made up a joke about Hillary Clinton on the spot, and it was based on um, the idea that what people would perceive is true, is probably something about the email deal, or whatever it is, Um, and so, so many people start off like asking, how can I make this funny, when this guy, and other people that I've talked to who are comedians say, the real question to say is, how can I make this true? Mm-hmm. And that's where people will laugh. Yeah. Do you find I, that too? Oh, yeah. I would say that's very, very true. Now, in your personal stories that you tell, kind of <coughs> personal narratives and stuff, do you use a lot of, use a lot of humor, right? I do, yeah. And, and a lot of times, it's exactly that. It's just telling in the most truthful way possible what happened and and just letting people react to that. Now, your stories 
do they tend to develop over time as you look at how an audience responds, or do you sort of go off by yourself, develop it, learn it, whatever, and then go? And mm. I've done it both ways. Right. It's kind of like I'm not sure which works best. Yeah. You know, I um, sometimes I'll just tell a story casually to friends, and I'm what I'm doing is trying to find that secret ingredient, or or how do I how should this be structured so yeah. that it tells well, and then it, it gets to a point where I'm like I think I'll try this in front of an audience. That's usually an audience that did not pay to be there, yeah. so they can't complain that they didn't get their money's worth, and and uh, see how it goes. And that's all oral. There might be bare bones bullet points written down somewhere, yeah. but it's all oral. And then I. The, the latest personal narrative that I tell, and the story to tell it takes about 30 minutes, I I did all of that. I did all of that. And then I sat down and manuscripted the entire story oh, huh. only for my own benefit. Yeah. And and what it did is it forced me to get to the minutia, like, oh, if this would this would flow better if I used a little bit of alliteration on this sentence. Or, huh. And I never I never read it out loud. Right. I, I I, it's nowhere near ready to be published as a written piece, but it did help me get it ready for the stage more efficiently, I think. Well, it's really interesting. You know, back when I was doing more storytelling, I would have an idea for a story, and I would almost have to make the choice in my mind, is this going to be a written story or a told story? Mm-hmm. And then I would develop it, let's say, to, for an oral performance. But if I would write it down, it wouldn't read well. Or I might say, I'm going to write this as a short story for a book or a magazine or whatever it is. But then I couldn't just, like, recite that. It's like they're two different um, mediums, right? They are. Written yeah, and spoken. Very much. And you can't just take one and, like, make it officially work with the other one. Every once in a while, you find a story that's written that very readily lends it itself does, yeah. to an oral presentation. Yeah. But even then, there has to be some adaptation. At Christmas time, I always tour with Charles Dickens' Christmas Carol. Oh, okay, yeah. And the nice thing is, he did all the hard work because he toured with oral presentations so of Christmas you, Carol. You do like a oral rendition of you yeah. memorized it yeah. or whatever. Yeah, and he he had taken the novel and cut it to a ninety minute version that he could do from the stage. So he did the hard work. He already made it, you know, an oral piece. So it's a ninety minute show that yeah. you did. ninety minute ninety minute. How'd show. you learn it, by the way? Well, it's Dickens. I mean, his stories tell themselves. I mean, they're just so musical. When you get flowing along, you know, it just I would take me out. three lifetimes, I think, to learn. Back in the day, I was telling stories uh, at a sh- at a show. It's like the it was like a Christmas. I don't even remember. It was in Tennessee, but it was like a Christmas program. I think it was in August or November or something. It was before Christmas, and so I would go and I would do storytelling show, and they had Charles Dickinson's grandson had learned yeah, the, yeah. the thing, and so he ended up coming to do that show. Yeah, and, yeah. It's a long Dickens family tradition. Oh, Dickens oh. did it, and then when he died and was off the scene, he had a son who went abroad, and I want to say it was Australia. He was far from England, huh. and his wife was killed in a carriage accident, and he was very much left devastated. Huh. And he ended up coming back to England and really needed a job. And he thought, you know what? I'm going to do what Dad did. Huh. And he started touring Christmas Carol. So it's been kind of a long-standing family that tradition for Dickens' family. Um, yeah, I, I don't remember the guy's 
first name or, or anything, but I just remembered. Um, That's how I got started doing Dickens is a restaurant in Charleston, South Carolina, where I live, wanted him. He was too expensive, so they called me. <laughs> oh, it's the same guy. <laughs> really? <laughs> well, um, uh, they always have like at those events. Sometimes they'll have cocktail parties and stuff like that. So my guess is, if my memory serves me correctly, you probably would have a few fewer cocktails <laughs> at the shows than. The gentleman who performed yes, the show. Yes, indeed. <laughs> that, was, that was interesting. But, um, but when you were telling a minute ago about the idea of coming up with material and how you sometimes try it out and people sort of take note of those moments, um, uh, I was playing disc golf. I don't know if you ever played disc golf, yeah, like frisbee yeah, golf or whatever. Uh -huh. You throw it in these metal chain baskets. And so I was playing with my friends the other day, and this one buddy of mine had never gotten a hole-in-one at the course we were at. And he threw, and it was maybe a 200-foot shot, and literally he got a hole-in-one. And he was so excited. We are all so excited. We are like, man, that was awesome. It was a great shot. I mean, it was just like perfect. It went right in. And so we went to the next hole, and this amazing, beautiful hawk landed on a tree maybe 80 feet from us, between us and the next hole. And, I mean, it looked like it was an eagle. It was so big. Like, it was literally... Eagle size, it was this whatever kind of hawk, a red billed hawk, I don't know. Anyway, so this hawk, and I said, I was like, okay, a stroke penalty if anybody hits the hawk. <laughs> so then my friend got up to throw, and he threw the disc and missed it by like a foot. <laughs> but I did not. Oh, no. Exactly. And see, when you just responded, that's how my wife responded when I told the story. And so she's like, what? You hit the hawk? I was like, yes, I literally whammed the hawk with the food. Oh, no. But there's that moment where you're kind of telling this anecdote, and then people respond. Like, they'll say, oh, no, or you hit it. And as I'm, like, shaping material, I'm saying, okay, that got a response. That's the kind of moment I would want to keep. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? I haven't shaped this. I don't perform or anything, but someday I think it'd be a fun story to tell, right? But those are the moments where I want to hang out to and say, okay, however I set that up, whatever happened there, it made someone respond. And then those are the ones I like to hang out to. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, exactly. Are you looking for that, too, yeah. like your spine? Yeah. You yeah. Know, look in her eye or they, <gasps> they gasp or whatever Exactly. To the, to the point, you really are a ferment of the listener, to the point that there are a handful of stories that I so love for whatever reason my audience does it so you know what I don't tell them <laughs> that probably more often happens with uh, some literary piece that I think oh I would love to do this from the stage and I, you know I try it and it, everybody's like okay eh. but when are you going to tell another personal narrative I'm like, okay thanks for listening I'll put that away <laughs> now how many hours of oral material would you say you kind of have locked I know it's amorphous it's always changing because you put some stuff aside maybe you know, learn some new material but what, what would you say your repertoire is how many hours of material would you say <laughs> it's funny you ask me that people usually ask how many stories do you know how many stories can you tell yeah so and and when you work as a storyteller and you're doing performances very regularly like I do about 400 to 450 performances a year you, you start a big, long list so that you, you know, you can say, okay, now what did I tell last time I was in front of right. the audience and right. what am I going to tell this time? So I went down my list 
and just put a time signature next to each one. How many? How long is this one? How long is that one? How long is this one? And not just personal narrative, but folk tales, stories from history, personal narrative, a few literary stories like Dickens' Christmas Carol. If I just started and went through the entire repertoire, I could talk for 24 hours without ever having to repeat myself. <laughs> you, you win the prize, man. That's fantastic. I was sitting on an airplane, that ended up, the lady next to me, she's like, what are you doing? I said, I'm planning a new world record filibuster in the United <laughs> States Congress. <laughs> that is pretty extraordinary for me, uh, just to even think about. Um, and and you've most, uh, except for a few, you know, literary pieces, you've had to shape all those stories from scratch. True. Yeah, yeah. Or some of them. Sometimes you pull a, a version from an anthology, particularly with folklore. And, and you just kind of learn it. But the more you tell it, the more you realize this is quite different from the original source sure. material that I yeah. found it in. It starts to really start to reflect your own voice and style. So now when you do uh, seminars um, for people, maybe corporate groups or, or others who are presenting, what are some of the keys that you like to mention as far as being um, confident or entertaining you know, speaker, performer, whatever, storyteller, whatever term, you know, you want to use. Yeah, what are some yeah. of the keys? That you, really you mentioned early in the conversation talking about a real passion for what you're doing, and I think that gives you a ball of energy that you can, you can run with for a long while. If you're truly passionate about what you want the audience to know, that carries your whole presentation so far. Um, if, if you're not really into it, don't don't start. Yeah. You know, if you don't love the story, if you don't love the people you're telling it to, then don't start because that's you're going to set up so many hurdles that are really hard to overcome. I would say that's foundational key. After that, uh, a lot of times it's it's uh, kicking things around to find what it's kind of an aha moment. Yeah. I was working with a, a corporate group who um, I sat down with 10 executives and I said, tell me what your company does. And they said, well, we make, uh, we're an industrial company. We make a, a specific product for engines. And I said, okay, so a little more specific. <laughs> and they said, we make battery separators. And I said, okay, that's fairly specific, but means nothing to me. Right. And then they said, well, you know when your dad, a long time ago, used to have to check the car battery and add a little water and the battery acid would leak out and you'd be like, don't, don't touch the car battery. I said, yeah, I, I remember that when I was a little kid. And they said, you don't have to do that anymore. And I said, right, nobody does that anymore. And they said, we are what? The founder of our company was working on a water filter with a total flop and he found out that it would work very well as a battery liquid separator. And the idea is applied from everything from a AA battery in your flashlight to giant industrial batteries that are larger than your home that run humongous factories. Yeah. And we were the company who developed that, except for one competitor. We're the only company in the world that produces that product. And I said, now there's your answer. I said, everybody loves a rags riches flop to, oh, there you, you know, go. Fantastic yeah, yeah. story. I said, that's what you need to be telling people. They they wanted a story that would 
help them describe what they did to potential investors. And I right. said, nobody wants to invest in boring. Everybody wants an exciting story. <laughs> yeah, that's... Um, I've been thinking more lately about this idea of business and corporate and marketing and story, and I don't really know where it's leading me, but I was thinking about, let's say that you have a company that makes plastic. Mm-hmm. Like, and they go, someone goes to work, and they just make plastic. How do you inspire them? How do you really motivate them? And I was thinking, well, what if you, where does the plastic go? All the way to the end. And let's say that the very end, after they make the plastic and it goes to this other place, they shape the plastic, they ship the plastic or whatever, it goes to the store, someone buys it. What if it's a mom um, holding a bottle, giving it to her baby? Mm-hmm. So, like, you're creating a story or a commercial or something. And so you show the image of the mom. Then you flip back to the person at the store and the truck driver and the factory. And then you always you get back to the person who's going into work at the plastic place at 5 a.m. or whatever. That's why he's working. Yeah, yeah. It's for that mom. Yeah, yeah. With the baby. I, I think and those stories were so well presented yeah. during the big war effort of World War II. Huh. You know the the, the whole survival of of not just the United States but Western culture depended on victory. So more you know as often as possible, particularly during that golden age of radio, they tried to present stories of the common man, but how what he was doing made a world of difference to the war effort. <coughs> Do you think that those still appeal to people today? Have you found because um, you've been telling stories for a number of years, and you do a wide variety of, of genres and so on. Like, what are you seeing as far as audiences today from when you got started? Do we still like the same kinds of stories, or or ha- have things shifted? Well, there's a. I think a lot of it depends on on the age of the audience. School children, you know, they're very in, they're still very comfortable with animal stories and. Raccoons that talk and, right. and things like that. So they kind of have a different aesthetic. But with with audiences that are, are mostly adult, I think they really – a buddy of mine, Kevin Kling, said it so well. He said, ultimately, storytelling reminds us that we are not alone. Yeah. And I think they're really looking for themselves in stories that they hear. And so um, young people – who are out there in the hurly-burly of life and, you know, really smashing it up, trying to, to better their career and, and get a good situation and find a spouse and, you know, make life work, and, and it's entirely up to them. They seem to really gravitate to stories that are a little bit more gritty, a little bit more about how tough life can be. Um, people who are kind of beyond that, you know, they kind of like to hear stories about the sweetness of life yeah. and that kind of thing. So I think it really much, it kind of depends on where you are. And we, before we came on the show, we were talking a little bit about sort of the change in the storytelling revival or whatever you want to call it over the last 30 or so years and and how um, it maybe isn't touching and reaching the next generation. Like, but both of us really love kids, right? We love doing family shows and kids, kids shows and stuff like that. Um, and so there's this uh, there's this changing dynamic um, where there's a lot of coming of age stories being told because a lot of the audience is older, their parents or grandparents or whatever. 
what, from your experience traveling around and, and doing different types of shows, how can we encourage really storytelling in the next generation, whether it's younger kids um, or teenagers? Because we all love stories, right? Like, they're addicted to stories just as we are, although the, the medium might change. It might be a YouTube story instead of a rocking porch or a rocking chair on the porch story. But, but um, how can we inspire them oral tradition of, of story and storytelling? I would say two things that are important to remember. One is you can grow people who appreciate a particular art form. And I've, I've t- done storytelling long enough that I've been able to see that firsthand. I, I was at a college and, and when they booked me to do an evening show for the artist series, it was one of those deals where you had to get a certain number of credits. You, had, you know, they offer eight oh, shows right, a semester, right. and you have to go to four of them. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and so the theater was packed, and, and my handler, he said, now I'm going to go up in the catwalk over the stage and watch and see how this is going. And I said, why up there? And he said, because from up there I can monitor how many cell phones light up, and, <laughs> and we'll see how many 20-year-olds are tuning you out and tuning in to, to social media. And he said, it went well. He said, it went really well. You, um, He said, I didn't see hardly any cell phones lighting up. He said, they really liked your show. And I realized a, per, a good percentage of that audience, I grew them. After the show, this girl yeah. walked up to me and she said, would you sign my CD? And I said, sure, but I didn't even bring any CDs to sell. She said, no, I've had this one since kindergarten. And I told my mom, <laughs> mail it. The, the storyteller is here and I'm going to get him uh, to sign my great. CD. Yeah. So I think just working hard to make it a part of, of your family culture or your community's culture so that, it, that people just grow with it and they're very comfortable with it. Um, that's one thing. But, but that's easier for me to do in my small town where I live. But then you see all these people who've never experienced storytelling. Yeah. Like, I think they would really like it if they, if they had, you know, a good experience. They like to see their peers you know, yeah. That that's always a, a good thing. Seems like the moth storytelling kind of movement in New York City and some of the bigger cities has, has kind of really attracted millennials and young mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. college students and so on. I don't know. I'm not a millennial, so I'm speaking for people, and I shouldn't do that. But I wonder. That's probably a better way to say yeah. it, rather than I think. I wonder if millennials are very very attracted to the moth model because it's quite true. I mean, you know, in a strict story slam rule, yeah. that they say whatever you tell has to be true. Yeah. It's got to be true. It doesn't have to be funny. It doesn't, you know, the the main thing is it has to be true. So it often comes out funny yeah. because right, true is always funny. But um there's so much in their experience that is one step removed from reality. Huh. Like your Facebook persona right. is not the real you. You know, reality television is not really reality. God only knows the true heart of Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. <laughs> and we all know that. And so to be able to sit down and just connect with somebody, human being to human being, yeah. I think that's extremely appealing. Yeah, and it's so powerful. I mean, um, you know, uh, back in the back in the day... In the 2000s, and so you might have been part of this too. But we, I was a program with the, it, it was 
Christians in theater arts. Um, mm-hmm. and, and at the time, churches were doing dramas more. Like, they would do a, a short drama. So I wrote a lot of um, kind of short, dramatic pieces, three to six-minute performances for, say, church to do to maybe set up a conflict or something that the um, sermon could address or whatever like that. And, and, so, um, and so it was kind of like this... Um, Part of part of that culture was to tell those short stories, and I have the sense that I completely forgot what I was talking about. <laughs> I started thinking about that theater program with Christians in theater arts, and I think that's actually how we ended up meeting. But I'm trying to remember like what exactly. I think it was just the poignancy of those short stories is really what I was thinking of as far as the dramas and stuff. But yeah, just a. A tiny little slice of real life. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's it. Like, the real life. And then, um, oh, okay, I know what I was, was going to say. It's like, um, but they, churches would do these programs, these little slice of life. And people would laugh, or sometimes people would cry. Um, and then churches eventually went away from that. And kind of now, sometimes they'll show a little video clip or something. But when they're watching a video clip, almost no one laughs out loud. Ah. Uh. Yeah, because yeah. it's that social encounter. That's what I was yeah, getting at. Because it's there's this, the presence, yeah, like when you talk about the moth, right? And there's real people telling real stories. But but when we watch a video, we smile, or we're like, okay, well that was cute, or something. Yeah. But yeah. when someone gets up there and does a show like you do, people will laugh, and literally kids will fall down laughing, right? And it's that it's so important that personal encounter. Um, yeah, another example of that is we just you know recognized the 15th anniversary of 9-11. And I had a friend who was in New York City when all that happened. And and he wrote his reminiscences of that day. And he said, I was working in an office building, and people called down from upstairs, and the first plane had hit the World Trade Center, but the second had not. Of course, they didn't know that was going to happen. And they said, you can see the World Trade Center if you come up to the 27th floor. And he said, I started to go with friends up to the 27th floor to get a better view. And he said, something told me, just watch the television. Don't go up there. Uh-huh. And he said, I was really glad that I didn't. He said, because then the second plane hit. Right. He said, I saw that on TV, but I did He said, that helped me deal with the situation because it was once removed from a mm-hmm. personal experience. Yeah, and when you have a live performer, you know, it's, it's, right it's just much more immediate. Yeah, yeah. And that feedback. So uh, before we wrap up, I want to, um, two things. First of all, um, what are some of the common weaknesses that you might see in maybe the people that you train or maybe in sort of novice uh, storytellers and like this or speakers? What are a couple of the weaknesses that you tend to see that we could hopefully weed out if we're going to be doing these presentations? I would say something that I, I observe a lot with beginning storytellers is they probably spend an awful lot of time thinking about what comes next in the story. Mm. It's like they, they're they very concerned that they'll forget. They're uh, very concerned yeah. that it won't be in the right order. And one, I think you have to know the story so well that that's no longer a major concern. Yeah. And two... You have to remember that because you're a servant of the audience, if you if you know your story well and you've got your material, then concentrate more on them than on the story. Good, yeah. At that point, you've really got to concentrate on 
the and people you're talking to, to yeah, their, exactly. you know, feedback yeah. or laughter. Otherwise, or it's a very well-rehearsed recitation, recitation yeah. but it's not it, – you, you will lose the opportunity to recall something that happened 20 yeah. minutes ago or, or connect it to what is coming next or what came before. Yeah, I like that, being present. And um, sometimes I've explained to people, like, your delivery depends upon – Three things, and most people only use two, like the storyteller, his own gifts and abilities, whatever that might be, whether it's mm -hmm. dramatic or not dramatic, uh, the story itself, the material, um, with the tone of it, the mood, the humor, whatever, and the audience. Like some people will go with the, the storyteller, their own skills, and the story, and they'll practice it in front of a mirror, but they'll forget the audience. Or some people will take their own gifts and they'll get out to tell the story with the audience, but they've never really prepared it that well, right? And you can usually tell, oh, he's just making this up or whatever, it's not prepared, or mm -hmm. the other guy is too prepared, right? But it's that responsiveness, it's that kind of almost dance with mm -hmm. you know, the audience, all three of the aspects, the, the teller, the material, and the audience, and only when all three of those come together, I think, does it really feel genuine mm -hmm. people are performing. Um, the other thing, before we close, uh, you had mentioned when we uh, were chatting earlier that you were doing a new program with your website with some of the material that you've done. I know your CDs are available. And I want you to tell us where we can get those or listen to them if it's on iTunes or at your website or whatever. And then take a minute and tell us about the new venture that you're doing with, with, um, with your site. Sure. Yeah. Uh, CDs are available on cdbaby.com. Okay. Storyteller Tim Lowry on cdbaby.com, and you can find lots of different story CDs. And I have a whole list of stories from American history that I they're useful to me in my work in schools, but I like them just because they're really great moments <laughs> yeah. in the history of the country. Some of them are very dramatic. Some of them are humorous. Some of them are just, like, almost unbelievable. And um, so I filmed those, but it's not like – actors acting out. It's me talking to you. Right. And there, there are some images that help illustrate the story. And then coupled with those, all kinds of fun things like an article of interest to read and uh, for students in particular, uh, story prompts to help you write a story based on what you've just heard. Nice. Bibliography where you can find more stuff. Yeah. So it's like a great you resource, get, I, especially for I call it, you get into a story and then you swim around in it. By the time you're done, you're an expert on the day <laughs> Lincoln died at Ford's Theater, or you're an expert on uh, Cowboy Bill Pickett. And uh, I call that storyvillageusa.com is, uh, is that new venture. Um, and so to connect with you or to find out about upcoming shows or performances you might have, where's the best place mm -hmm. to look for that? Storytellingtimlowry.com. Excellent. Uh, well, it, it's been fun chatting and catching up a little bit. And it's, it's Again, it's exciting to see how things have taken off for you, Tim. And uh, for everybody listening, thanks for, for tuning in. For information about my novel writing intensive retreats, um, go to novelwritingintensive.com. We'll be doing one next spring in Jonesboro, Tennessee, which is the um, kind of the story, the heart of the storytelling revival. That'll be next March. Uh, for more info about our other guests and broadcasts, Click to thestoryblender.com and always remember the art of the story is all in the blend. We'll see you next time. <laughs>